is Bloomberg Surveillance. There's certainly a heightened set of risks in the U.S. economy right now, and that's because the United States isn't an island. We're part of a global economy. We're throwing away 8% of GDP on health care in ways that no other country does. The big argument about excessive low interest rates for a very long period of time is it warps the investment pattern on real investment. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keene from Washington, D.C., after Super Tuesday, we've had some fabulous uh, moments here the last few days. Coming up, the uh, American economy and our economic politics. Jared Bernstein join us, joining us with terrific research over the years on our dynamics of inequality, of income and wealth. Jared Bernstein, of course, uh, with a public service tenure with Vice President Biden as well. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. And brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. Regulatory changes can impact your business. See how the experts at Cone Resnick can help you navigate these complexities. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. Uh, and Michael McKee, uh, you, you, it's always a shock when you see it. And you never get over it. But earthquake news again and not of the funny kind whatsoever. No, this is a magnitude 8.2 quake, uh, some 763 miles southwest of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. There is the possibility of a tsunami. We are waiting to find out uh, whether that is happening. Now, a magnitude 8.2 earthquake is about the size that struck Tokyo uh, and uh, Japan uh, a couple of years ago. However, um, it all depends on how deep it was and how far away it was from land and whether there's a tsunami or not. So we know there's a big earthquake. We do not know what the outcome is going to be. Stay tuned. We'll uh, bring you the headlines as soon as we get them. Yeah, and uh, looking at the map, still trying to, to locate any number of them today, but this is, again, near uh, in, in the broader vicinity of Singapore as well. We'll give you more details on that. This is just coming out now, an earthquake near Malaysia with tsunami uh, warning. It was a tsunami yesterday in politics. We thought we would give you economic perspective. Jared Bernstein uh, joins us now. He's been such a benefit to us with the Center on Budget and Policy uh, Priorities. Jared Bernstein, let me start first with Secretary Clinton. You had service with Vice President Biden. Is there a rationality to Secretary Clinton's budget promises? Oh, yes, I think there is. Uh, uh, she is, uh, I think, pretty disciplined in her proposals in terms of figuring out how you raise what we call here in Washington the pay-fors, that is, the revenues to pay for the ideas that she's espousing. Now, what she can tell us, and I don't know that anyone could, is how she's going to get a, a, a gridlocked Congress to get behind her. These are not the kinds of ideas that you can do by executive order or rule change, the kind um. of thing the president can do herself. So there is the political dimension, but I think uh, it, 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 it's actually interesting. People don't typically accuse Secretary Clinton's numbers of not adding up, uh, because I think they probably do. So much of the uh, critique on the other side has been a budget policy of fiction, and I think that's coming really from all angles. I'm remarkable, Jared, how people that you don't speak to agree with Jared Bernstein on this matter. What is the level of fiction you hear in Republican budget rhetoric right now? Is it worst ever, or is this just a normal process? It's worst ever, and I can actually quantify that. I mean, everyone always says worst ever, but I can actually quantify it. If you look at the largest tax cuts that have ever occurred, 
They are significantly smaller as a share of GDP than any of the ones the Republican candidates are proposing. Now, that might be fine if, if you really want to cut the heck out of taxes, if that's where you're coming from, and some people are. But in order to not explode the deficit, you'd have to cut so much other spending, literally up to 90% under some of these plans, and nobody will ever accomplish that. It simply won't happen. So, yes, uh, uh, deep fantasies on, on, the, on, the, on the Republican side in terms of tax cuts. And to be fair and, par and nonpartisan here, um, Bernie Sanders' plan involves a level of tax increases uh, that we haven't seen in the past, such that government as a share of the economy would go from its kind of traditional level of about 20, 21, maybe 22 percent to something closer to 30 percent. Now, that's not uncommon in European social democracies, and in fact, the candidate tells you that that's where he's coming from. So he's not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but that's a very, very different uh, sort of uh, uh, relationship between government and the economy than we've historically had. But as you try to put together uh, an economic program for a candidate, uh, for an administration, it's easy to move the numbers around, but it's very hard to move public opinion around. Americans' uh, tax burden is much lower than it has been in a very long time, and yet people would totally disagree with what I just said and think that they are overtaxed and uh, underappreciated by their government. And you see the, the Trump people, the Trump fans don't care that his numbers make no sense. So how do you deal with that part of it? Well, you were kind of telling the story of my life right now, uh, not to get down on the, uh, on the, on the psychiatrist uh, couch, but it is pretty hard for those of us who are in the facts business to be operating in a world where facts uh, don't have a lot of, uh, of traction. I will say this, though. It's easy to kind of cast aspersions. I'm not saying you were doing this, but I, uh, it's easy to cast aspersions at, at people for their misperceptions. But I think you have to admit that the federal government is uniquely dysfunctional and not working in any way that any of us would recognize. I mean, you guys go to work and do your job. I go to work and do my job. Lots of people who are angry right now go to work and do their jobs. And yet, for all the taxes they're paying, and you're right, in historical terms, they're not particularly high, uh, they feel that the people on the other side of, that, of, of those tax receipts don't go to work and do their job. And then that's yeah. a source of anger. Jared, to switch gears, so much of it is about economic growth. I believe somebody long ago said morning in America. What part of the day is it in America right now? It seems like a lot of people are doing better. Are we really? I wouldn't say a lot of people are doing better. I would say it's kind of maybe mid-afternoon. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say because we don't know uh, where the next recession is. All we know is that this expansion uh, is about six and a half years old, and that's longer than the average expansion. Uh, I think the idea of mourning in America kind of comes from the early 1980s being a period after a pretty deep recession, and it was uh, it looked, uh, I think, very plausible that growth was going to was going to increase. Uh, what they didn't see then and what we know now is that that growth is going to be highly unequal. So yes, while the economy has been growing consistently for six and a half years, the labor market is particularly strong with low unemployment and, and decent job growth. The benefits of growth are only now beginning to reach more people, and that's pretty late in the game for that to be occurring. Well, uh, I, I go back to um, what I was asking earlier about how you deal with that. I mean, is there... Is there a, a carrot that you offer people 
uh, do you have to be willing at this point to accept some additional deficit spending to cut taxes again, or is cutting taxes just uh, not going to work given the level of expenditure we have? Well, frankly, I don't think we can afford to be cutting taxes given what we're looking at, even just in terms of demographics. Uh, if we want to have a sustainable uh, budget going forward. We know that uh, folks like me, and maybe you guys, I can't see you, it's, it's the radio, um, are aging baby boomers, and based on demographics alone, we're going to need to uh, somewhat ratchet up uh, our expenditures to meet the uh, entitlement program, or uh, Social Security, Medicare, uh, to meet those demands. So I don't see uh, a rationale towards, you know, certainly large or significant tax cuts. I, I know that I suspect uh, candidate Hillary Clinton has talked about at some point coming forward with some sort of a tax cut for the middle class. We'll see what that looks like. But I kind of walk around mm -hmm. thinking that uh, the, the way forward is not so much to contemplate cutting taxes. It's to think about an agenda that will help reconnect people's prosperity to the growing economy. So it's really focused more on pushing back on these inequality trends we've been discussing. Let's go back with Jared Bernstein with the Center uh, on Budget Policy Priorities. Uh, we'll continue our discussion here of the fiscal side and economic side. Um, as the election process gets interesting to Michigan and then on to Florida uh, two weeks from uh, yesterday, Mike McKee, I've never seen an earthquake announced with so little information on the Internet. It is Mentawe. This is off of Bloomberg uh, News. It is a huge earthquake. Uh, near Mentawai, M-E-N-T-A-W-A-I, southwest, 763 miles from Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia, and it's just original how little information there is on this right now. Well, I'm finding it very interesting because there is uh, there are headlines out from the Malaysians and from the Indonesian uh, quake agencies, but nothing on the U.S. Geological yeah. Survey uh, earthquake site yet. So um, usually the USGS is sort of the worldwide authority, and you look to them first. So this is an interesting situation. We will, of course, continue to monitor this and bring you any news that we can as soon as we can. And we want to be careful on that because, again, the news flow off of this is very, very, um, very, very uh, challenging. We'll continue to uh, give you headlines because off the Bloomberg, an 8.2, a very large earthquake uh, in the vicinity of Malaysia and Singapore as well. Futures negative four, Dow futures in negative 30. Oil finally weaker after two, three good days. Brent crude 36.70 per barrel down, oh, 10 cents uh, this morning. Now let's bring in Michael Barr with the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Thank you very much, Mike and Tom. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have widened their leads after Super Tuesday contest. Overall, Trump and Clinton each won seven states. As you had mentioned earlier, there is word of an 8.2 earthquake that has hit off Kuala Lumpur. Malaysian authorities are checking to see if there are any casualties, but nothing yet so far from the U.S. Geological Survey. The U.N. Security Council votes today on a resolution that would impose the toughest sanctions on North Korea in two decades. The U.S. and North Korea's traditional ally, China, spent seven weeks negotiating the new sanctions in response to Pyongyang's latest nuclear test and rocket launch. Both are in defiance of previous council resolutions. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? 
And Michael, thank you so much. The yen weaker, 114.29. That's a big move over three days, 114.29 from a 112 handle earlier. Euro churns a 108.57 as well. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. The news update brought to you by the Town of Hempstead Industrial Development Agency. Find out how to put the Town of Hempstead IDA to work for your business. Call 1-800-593-3870 or visit tohida.org. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow, breaking economic news crossing the Bloomberg. We go to Vinny Del Judice with the latest. Vinny. Karen, more progress in the U.S. labor market. Payroll provider ADP reporting businesses added 214,000 jobs in February, topping forecast January revised higher. Again, the ADP report showing private payrolls top forecast in February up 214,000. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Karen. All right, thanks, Vinny. And futures remain lower following that report. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. We are seeing small losses in the U.S. futures. Dow futures currently lower by 19 points. SBs drop three. And NASDAQ futures are lower by two. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.85%. In Europe, Spain gains 1.1%. And Italy is higher by 0.7%. On the U.S. economic front at 1030, look for energy inventory numbers. And at 2 o'clock, Fed releases Beige Book. In other news, Weatherford prices 100 million shares at 565 a share. Sports Authority files for Chapter 11, and Transocean CFO sees no rig market recovery in the next 12 to 24 months. In deal news, IFR Asia reports IBM seeks to sell entire stake in Lenovo, CCL Industries to buy Checkpoint Systems for 10.15 a share. Regarding earnings this morning, Abercrombie and Fitch EPS beat, Brown and Foreman EPS in line, revenue missed, and Monsanto cut your ongoing EPS views. Shares are down 6% pre-market. Finally, some of your Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. EQT cut to equal weight over at Morgan Stanley. Dollar Tree cut to market perform at Raymond James. And finally, Universal Health raised to neutral over at Stern AG with a price target of 144. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you so much. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning from Washington, brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks and to consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. That's Invesco.com slash high conviction. We're thrilled to bring you Jared Bernstein uh, from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But, Mike, first, um, I've never seen, Mike, an earthquake with such little information. Well, it's just beginning to come out now, and maybe partly because of the location, but the U.S. Geological Survey does have it on their maps now. They're calling it a 7.9 earthquake, 7.9 magnitude. If you draw a line, uh, draw a triangle uh, sort of south... Uh, southwest of Kuala Lumpur and Singapore, out into the uh, Java Sea, uh, the Indian Ocean, you will uh, see where the earthquake is. It's uh, off the coast of uh, Indonesia at this point, and uh, no reports of damage yet. There is a tsunami warning, which would be normal 
for this magnitude of an earthquake, but no sign of one yet. So, again, we continue to monitor. We do know it was about six miles deep, which is uh, not particularly deep. Uh, so yeah. it could have an impact. Um, well, we don't know yet. Yeah, Sumatra, uh, quickly here, Sumatra is protecting Singapore from large waves. At least that's the theory uh, right now, Sumatra with a, the southern coast of Sumatra with a tsunami uh, uh, tsunami uh, warning. Jared Bernstein with us. He never thought he'd get so much earthquake and geology uh, within his visit about. to Bloomberg's. Yeah, some, something. But, Jared, it goes to a budget reality, which is somebody pays for the USGS, don't they? We like to talk about spending. No, it's a great point. Uh, Interestingly, uh, in our last uh, bit of conversation, I mentioned that suppose you wanted to really pursue some of these uh, big tax cut ideas. It's not uncommon, by the way, for uh, someone campaigning for president to say they want to cut taxes. What they never tell you is that if you want to prevent a a real budget debacle, then you're going to have to cut spending to balance out the tax cuts. Well, the only type of spending that uh, people want to cut these days, they don't want to cut entitlements, they don't want to cut defense, is the part of the budget that supports things uh, exactly like the geological survey, but also some infrastructure, some education and training, health and uh, research, uh, the non-discretionary defense part of the uh, non-defense discretionary right. part of the budget. No. We, we did this with Jason Furman yesterday. Let's do it with you again to review. What have we cut in our budget? given our Democratic president's austerity. Review for us entitlement cuts versus USGS kind of cuts. Uh, Exclusively the latter. That is, if you look at where the uh, spending cuts have occurred, they're almost exclusively on what's called the non-defense discretionary side of the budget. So this is the part of the budget that helps states pay for education, it pays for some infrastructure, it pays for the kinds of weather uh, uh, forecasting roles that we were just discussing, the the geological seminary, the the geological survey. It pays for, um, uh, as I mentioned, medical research. Uh, and, and this is now down as a share of GDP uh, to its lowest level on record, uh, going all the way back to the 1960s. That's where the cuts have been concentrated because that's where the cuts are the least politically uh, insulated. People, are, uh, people don't want to see cuts to entitlement programs, and there's lots of hawks who don't want to see cuts to defense. So what's left? What I've been describing. Then that, that famous Wall Street Journal headline of a year and a half, two years ago, of bombing the Pentagon back to 1938 or 1940% of GDP. Are we getting there? Are, are we going to have a Pentagon budget that takes us back pre-Eisenhower? Well, I actually think that the, Penta, the Pentagon budget is kind of holding constant to the level of GDP. That's not particularly high. Interestingly, uh, defense hasn't been... Um, completely spared, but it, it, it's mostly not growing as much as it is getting cut. Where we're really cutting is on the non-defense discretionary part yeah. of the budget that has very few protectors. Jared, thank you so much. Jared Bernstein with us with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And uh, we had him on for too short a time as we look at uh, the news of the earthquake uh, far to the south of Singapore and Kuala Lumpur out off the southern coast of Sumatra, a little bit of exposure to Australia, uh, very far away. Again, a 7.9 earthquake, uh, according to the U.S. uh, GS. Let's review the view forward for surveillance here in support of 99.1 FM Washington. Thank you for the many notes of uh, listeners uh, in the Washington and Baltimore area. 
with 99.1 FM. We greatly appreciate uh, your comments and joining us today uh, as well. Lonnie Chen will join us. He is with the Rubio campaign, advising them. We've spoken to him many times uh, before. Kevin Hassett. Kevin Hassett with AEI will talk to him about what the establishment will do. Uh, and also Libby Cantrell will join us from PIMCO on policy moving forward. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to call off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover Above and Beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1140, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 99.1, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, 830 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. We are in Washington, D.C. today, Super Wednesday, our follow-up to... The Super Tuesday voting. Good morning to everyone here listening on 99.1 FM in the Washington and Baltimore areas. Uh, the focus uh, in the political world is on the Super Tuesday primaries. On Wall Street, it is on the economic data. And we have some new numbers out this morning. Our economic indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638. Or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Number of the morning, ADP, out 15 minutes ago, uh, they found, according to their calculations, 214,000 more private sector jobs were added in the month of February. That is more than the 190,000 forecast by economists and more than the 193,000 revised estimate for January. So good news on the employment front, if you believe ADP is a measure of anything, and economists are divided about that. But it is another strong number, along with uh, the, the better number, not strong, but better number from ISM yesterday. Dean Mackey is a chief, in, uh, chief economist for Point72 Asset Management. He, he joins us now. Dean, uh, if it were not for the heart attack that the stock market had at the first of the year, would the Fed be raising rates at the March meeting? I think it's pretty clear that if you only looked at the economic data and not at the markets, uh, the Fed would be raising rates in March. Uh, the job growth has, you know, slowed a bit in the payroll numbers, but it kind of had to after 280-plus thousand in the fourth quarter on average. Uh, but nothing worrisome. Jobless claims look fine. And uh, the ISM looks to have bottomed out and, and, and seems to be picking up some steam. So there's nothing in the economic data. And, and further, inflation, core inflation has picked up as well. So if, if the Fed were not paying attention to markets, they, they certainly would be raising rates in my view. Well, do they need, how much attention do they need to pay to markets, um, especially since we've seen markets sort of rebound over the next, last few days? I think that the, the risk, there's a risk that the Fed pays too much attention to market volatility and, and, you know, responds too quickly when, when markets run into difficulty. Um, now the Fed would say they, they need to do that because that market volatility could affect economic growth. I, I myself am a little skeptical that the kind of volatility we've seen is really going to cause a severe slowdown in the economy. 
Where are we on calculating exports and imports into what our central bank will do? Are we using a purely domestic prism, or do they have to worry about trade and, for that matter, inventory adjustments? I think they do do need to to worry about all of that. Uh, but the way I look at the U.S. right now, consumer spending looks to be on a solid growth track. Uh, it looks like it's going to be 3% or, or possibly even better in the first quarter. And as long as you have that, you know, trade can be a drag, inventories can be somewhat of a drag, and you still get 2 to 2.5% growth. Um, that's more than enough to keep pushing the unemployment rate down to keep job growth solid. Um, so with consumer spending on, on that kind of a track, it's, it's very difficult for the, yeah. the economy to fall below, below its potential growth rate. What are the ramifications if the Fed pauses, if they're under the kind of pressure that Mike and I see in our mail from people that say Dean Mackey's out of his mind, they shouldn't raise rates, What what is the price if they pause? Well, I think the, the one reason they, they will pause is the price is lower than it than it is at certain points in the cycle. So while inflation has risen, it is below target still. And the Fed doesn't mind if it goes somewhat above target uh, as long as it's you know under control. So I don't think there's a huge cost to the Fed of, of waiting. I, I think the, the risk really is down the road. As if the unemployment rate keeps falling in the way that I think it will, uh, at some point the Fed is probably going to have to tighten more aggressively than they than they expect. But And the, the more they pause and the longer they wait, the, the more likely that outcome becomes. When is down the road, though? Because the markets seem to be discounting that well into the future. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think the unemployment rate is going to be close to 4% by the end of the year. And the, you know, w- with that kind of backdrop, if wage growth continues to pick up as, as I expect it will, and core inflation continues to drift higher, the Fed's going to be increasingly uncomfortable having rates close to zero. And so this is probably a story for 2017 rather than this year where, where the Fed has to pick up the pace. Uh, but the longer they wait, right. the, the, the more likely that becomes. Well, quickly, if we get a 3.9 print, and when you sort in a new terminal value, a more dampened animal spirit, what rate would the Fed use as their target? It's not the rate of 2006, is it? You mean in terms of the term, the, the long-run the neutral rate. funds rate? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Fed's estimate is 3.5%. I, I think that's... That's reasonable. Um, okay. They won't necessarily go there quickly, but I, I think that is a, a reasonable place to expect them to go over time. Dean Mackey, thank you so much with 0.72. Uh, with a, a beginning of an update, Mike, 3.5% just seems miles away, distant. Well, at the rate we've been going, it won't be that distant that quickly. Uh, whether you get to 4% by the end of the year or not, that may be a little aggressive, but it's certainly moving in that direction. And he's not the only one that's saying the Fed may have to yeah. move faster. Yeah, absolutely. Dean Mackey with 0.72. Of course, really beginning with all the distractions of Washington, three days of coverage of the American Jobs Report with the ADP numbers uh, today. Bill Gross scheduled to join us on Friday, some other good guests Uh, as well to give you perspective to go beneath the headline data on the American labor economy. Futures at negative 6, Dow futures negative 47. 
Now it's time to hear from Michael Barr with the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Donald Trump says he is expanding the Republican Party, even as many of its leaders have distanced themselves from him. Trump won in seven states during Super Tuesday. Ted Cruz won in three states, while Marco Rubio chalked up his first victory of the campaign in Minnesota. The magic number to win the Republican presidential nomination is 1,237. Right now, Trump has 274 delegates, or 285, I should say. Cruz has 149, and Rubio at 82. Democrat Hillary Clinton, who won seven states last night, tried to turn Donald Trump's Make America Great Again slogan on its head. Clinton told supporters the country instead must be made whole again. Bernie Sanders picked up victories in four states, including his home state of Vermont. For the Democrats, Clinton has at least 1,005 delegates. Sanders has 373. It will take at least 2,883 delegates to win the Democratic presidential nomination. Vice President Joe Biden, during a Black History Month reception in Washington last night, had some sarcasm for Donald Trump. I think we really are have a chance to move toward a more perfect union incrementally. I really, really do. So I want to thank Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. The U.S. Geological Survey says a 7.9 earthquake has hit off Sumatra. Indonesian officials say the quake is about 763 miles southwest of Kuala Lumpur. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. And for that, we bring in John Stashower. John. All right, Mike, not as if the Yankees didn't know what they were getting when they acquired reliever Aldis Chapman from Cincinnati. The Dodgers backed off a trade after learning of Chapman's involvement in a domestic violence and firearm situation last fall. Baseball has suspended Chapman for 30 games. He can pitch in spring training, then not again until May 9th. He'll forfeit $1.8 million in salary. Chapman said in a statement that while he never harmed his girlfriend, he should have used better judgment. Things going from bad to worse for the Knicks. Fans at the Garden booed early and often. A 104-85 loss to Portland. One courtside fan was getting on Carmelo Anthony, who then offered the fans some advice. No one is right there. Ask for your money back. That's not <laughs> I mean, at that point, you know, he, he called me to tell me that he's never coming to another game. And he's sucking. I mean, you just don't, you just don't want to hear that. So. I, I pointed to the owner and told him, look, you deal with that with him. Maybe you can get your money back. The Knicks have lost 15 of 18. Second game in as many nights at the Staples Center for the Nets. After losing to the Clippers, they came back. Lost to the Lakers, who had been on an eight-game losing streak, 107-101. Kobe Bryant didn't play, but rookie D'Angelo Russell did and scored 39 points. Islanders on a Thomas Hickey goal midway through the third period, won 3-2 at Vancouver. All three goals actually went in off Vancouver players. Late goal by Carolina, and then another the Hurricanes beat the Devils. Three to one with the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. I'm John Stashhammer. John, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate that. Uh, good morning, 99.1 FM uh, here in Washington. Bloomberg 1200 Boston. Bloomberg 1130 New York. See you tomorrow. We'll t- uh, move back up the coast tonight and be with you very much tomorrow morning. You make to it continue. sound like we're a storm. Unless <laughs> it's a storm. We're moving up the coast. We're moving up the coast. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by the New York Chamber of Commerce. Mining agriculture opportunities abound in Nigeria. Learn about protective investments in Africa's most active markets. Thursday, March 3rd, breakfast at 8 a.m., 20 West 44th Street. Breakfast is free. 
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Companies added more workers than projected in February. The 214,000 increase in employment followed a revised 193,000 rise in the prior month. Figures from the ADP Research Institute show. McKesson, a U.S. distributor of medical products, will acquire Rexall Health from its private owner for $2.2 billion to expand its presence in Canada. Monsanto cutting its full-year profit forecast as lower prices for its glyphosate herbicide and a devalued Argentine peso added to the pressure from weaker agricultural markets. Futures lower this morning. S&P E-mini futures down five points. Dow E-mini futures down 38. And Nasdaq E-mini futures down seven and a half. DAX in Germany is up two tenths percent. The 10-year Treasury down three thirty seconds. The yield 1.83 percent. NYMEX crude oil down one percent or 35 cents to 34.05 a barrel. COMEX gold is up two tenths percent or two dollars to 12.33 an ounce. The euro, $1.0848. The yen, 114.19. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Uh, Karen, uh, thank you so much. From Washington, D.C., it is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. About a week ago, as it became clear that Donald Trump was likely to be the Republican nominee, I noticed a new phenomenon among friends and family, lifelong Republicans who were considering voting for Clinton in the fall. So this weekend, I asked Twitter for emails from people like this, party stalwarts who were committed not to vote for Trump no matter what. I expected a few dozen. I got a few hundred. Who are these voters? They're drawn from all ages, demographics, geographies, from Virginia military officers to Indiana farmers to blue state college students. And while they talked about policy issues, most of their issues revolved around character, bullying, impulsiveness, misogyny and racism, narcissism. They especially criticized his authoritarian streak, which made people worry about strong men, fascist dictatorships, nuclear war. Almost all of them hastened to tell me that they hated Hillary Clinton and what she would do in office, but they feared that Donald Trump would be no better on policy and thought he would be quite possibly worse on everything else. Didn't never Trump voters understand what this meant, people inquired? Losing the Supreme Court for a generation? Cementing Obamacare? Raising taxes? They did, but they were unwilling to be associated with Donald Trump in any way, even if that meant spending time in the wilderness. If Hillary is elected, I think the republic will survive, said one. But if Trump is elected, I have my doubts it will. They may be partisans, but they put their country first of all. I'm Megan McArdle. For more View, please go to BloombergView.com or View Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, all of you around the world. Bloomberg Radio Plus Bloomberg 1200 Boston, Bloomberg 960 waking up the Bay Area, San Francisco, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. And here in Washington, good morning, 99.1 FM. Michael? We are in Washington uh, for the aftermath of Super Tuesday, the series of primaries that were held yesterday. It is not Super Tuesday that matters, however. According to Libby Cantrell, who is a PIMCO's uh, political analyst, it is the 15th of March when a, another series of primaries will be held that could bring the contest to a close. We move into a phase where there are a number of winner-take-all primaries in very big states, Florida, Illinois, Missouri, Ohio. And Libby, uh, you think that uh, 
this could be it, it could be over on the Republican side at the end of the day, that day. Yeah, March 15th is undoubtedly going to be a major inflection point. It is, as you point out, Mike, the day that states have the choice of whether they allocate delegates on either a proportional or winner-take-all basis. But importantly, it is also the date of Florida and Ohio primaries, which are winner-take-all states. And those are states where Rubio and John Kasich have to win respectively, in order to, to, to stay in the race. At this point, given Trump's, you know, really runaway success so far, um, I think to the chagrin of some of the sort of so-called establishment in D.C., the, the math just won't work unless you know, Rubio takes Florida, unless Kasich takes Ohio. So really, it's going to be an inflection point in that either the, the, the race is, is effectively over at that point, or it, it continues to sort of limp along, um, you know, at the at, with that with with Trump being the kind of the clear front runner. Tom and I are in Washington for Super Tuesday. We're looking for a place to go for this March fifteenth date. I think Tom favors the Northern Marianas Islands. Winner take all. Nine delegates. All that may there. be that <laughs> may be key. Uh, does the bond market <laughs> start? <laughs> Does the bond market start paying attention on March 16th to what's been going on? We were just listening to Megan McArdle read her uh, latest Bloomberg View uh, article where she noted that there are people in the Republican Party who think the country is in grave danger if Donald Trump becomes president. Well, yeah, from an economic perspective, the, the, the hard thing about Donald Trump is that he's kind of ideologically all over the map, right? So on one hand, if he opposes free trade, which has been part of the Republican platform for, for a long time in terms of opening up trade, um, but then he, he, on the other hand, has a much more aggressive tax policy that, you know, would add from right. estimates around nine trillion to twelve trillion dollars to the debt, so he's he's all over the place. So from a market's perspective, it's hard to get your your arms wrapped around what a Trump presidency would actually mean, which probably is a bad thing for the markets, right? Because markets don't typically like uncertainty. Uh, Libby, uh, if we take it even forward to how you advise PIMCO, when do we care about the electoral process with our investments? I mean, I think it's way overdone, uh, the linkages, but do we care before the conventions? Do we care after the conventions? Can I ignore all this until the third week of October? Yeah, well, I think, again, March 15th from the Republican side will be, will be an inflection point because it will show, it will indicate whether this goes to the convention, honestly, or whether it's, it's over. So the convention, which usually doesn't matter, um, could actually matter pretty, you know, pretty significantly on, on the Republican side. But I think from an investor's perspective, we, we probably shouldn't really start caring until the nominees are firmed up. I think on the Democratic side, it looks like that's probably going to happen sooner than later. But again, the Republican side, that could happen as, as early as March 15th or could, could last up until the convention. So I don't think we should start really focusing on it, though, until we have a good idea on both sides that the delegate mass is going to work out um, to sort of pretend to a, a, a firm winner on, on each side. 
Well, as you point out, Donald Trump's uh, platform is rather incoherent, but Hillary Clinton's is not. She wants to do things like break up too-big-to-fail banks, uh, extend uh, taxation, uh, 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 the carried interest uh, tax uh, to uh, to people in the financial industry. And uh, I'm wondering if, if those sectors start to show some movement uh, when it becomes obvious that, A, she's wrapped up the Democratic nomination, and, B, uh, there may be a weaker Republican against her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a good point. Although, if you really look into her regulatory reform agenda, it's really not as draconian as you might think just listening to the rhetoric. I mean, she does want to do some things at the margin, many of which would actually require congressional approval. So it's not even clear... If she were in the White House, you know, would she be able to actually implement her regulatory reform agenda? And on, you know, the other things that you talked about, Mike, on taxation, I mean, she, she does want to address the, the so-called carry interest loophole, but so do the Republican candidates. I mean, that's part of the Republican candidates' tax platform as well. So while the rhetoric might seem extreme, um, you know, and, and maybe this is just Pollyannish, but just given the fact that Clinton has been a creature of, of Washington, the fact that, you know, her husband was sort of the master triangulator and master compromiser, I would think that she would want to compromise more than you might think, again, just given given where the rhetoric has been. I think there's some, there's some areas mm-hmm. of compromise, maybe on corporate tax reform, maybe on entitlements, um, that you could actually see some sort of deal even coming together if she were in the White House with a, with a split Congress. <clears throat> Libby, what will you look for quickly from the Washington establishment within the Republicans in the next 48 hours? They've got one, two, three days before yeah. they get ready, ready for Michigan. What do they do? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you see that you know Ryan and McConnell have both said that they'll support whomever the nominee is, but then they've been a little bit equivocating a little bit more given some of Trump's um, more extreme comments about you know, white supremacists and what have you. So, it, you know, it will be interesting. I think that um, they might, especially McConnell, who has a very vulnerable Senate, as we've talked about, on the Republican side, he might, it might behoove him to distance himself even more from a Donald Trump um, for, you know, for hopes that he can protect some of those vulnerable Republican seats. So, you know, I think if they're, right. they, they equivocate anymore, it's probably an indication that um, D.C. is not going to want to have a lot to do with a Donald Trump nominee, honestly. Right. Well, Libby, it must be a sign of spring. We got through this without talking about your Denver Broncos. Libby Cantrell, thank you uh, so much. She is with PIMCO as we look at our election uh, process. Mike, it's been just an amazing, amazing 48 hours. It has. Uh, it, it has developed as people had forecast, but it's sort of like watching a, a train wreck uh, on the Adams yeah. family. You know it's going to happen, and when it happens, it isn't any better. Yeah. Well, uh, stay tuned for coverage and perspective here again, Michigan. Six days from now, and then on to Florida. I believe it's March. Florida's March fifteenth, right? Yes, I got something right. We'll get Libby back when uh, yeah, we will. Peyton Manning makes a decision. I think we'll have to do this. Florida from spring training in two weeks. It's Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs>